Father, thanks for your goodness to us, not only this morning, but always, because you are good and right and true. Would you go before us this morning as we look at your word? Would you speak to our hearts, to our minds? Would you conform us to the image of your son? We ask that you would help us see what we need to see this morning and hear what we need to hear. Give us hearts to be transformed into your likeness. We ask it in your name. Amen. Good morning. Good to see you guys. Open it up to Revelation. If you're not already there, your Bible, back of your Bible. We are in week six of a 12-week series in the book of Revelation, and we only have one chapter today. Yes, because if you were with us the last couple of weeks, last week we covered four chapters. Uh, the week before, we covered two chapters, and what we've been looking at in the book of Revelation, again, if you're new, just to kind of catch you up, uh, chapter 6 through 11, uh, we're on the seven seals and the seven trumpets, which is really God's symbolic imagery in John's language to the, the churches, the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 that we saw in Revelation, talking about how God's judgment, his righteous judgment is going to fall on the wicked. That because God is good and because he's righteous, that he will eradicate evil one day, and some of that symbolic language to help us understand what that looks like, not only uh, at the end of time, but in our lives as well, that God will not let evil continue. And author and speaker Henry Nouwen uses a trapeze metaphor to talk about communication about the fact that God is good and that there's faith involved in this journey called Christianity. When Henry Nouwen was watching a South African trapeze group, he recognized that the flyer, the one flying through the air doing the flips, was actually not the hero or the star of the performance because the flyer's aerial maneuvers are only possible if they're going to be caught. If there's no catcher, then the person can't do what they're doing throughout the air. Everything depends on the catcher. And now and compared the catcher in the trapeze to faith in God. Here's what he says. He says, if we're able to take risks, to be free in the air, in life, then we have to know there's a catcher. We have to know that when we come down from it all, we're going to be caught. We're going to be safe. The great hero is the least visible. Trust the catcher. As we've been walking and talking about God's people in the midst of his judgment being rolled out in the book of Revelation, and those people that have surrendered their lives to Jesus, that they have ultimate protection because of the blood of the lamb. They have ultimate protection in a catcher that is good, that will catch them. And so when it's all said and done, when you take your last breath, you have somebody that's there to catch you because of the work of Jesus. You are covered in the midst of this life. And so what we're going to see John do is he's going to pivot, he's going to transition from this judgment. We saw seven uh, seals and then seven trumpets. In a couple of chapters, we'll see seven bowls to kind of complete this judgment. But what John is going to do is he's going to pivot in chapters 12, 13, and 14 to, again, get behind the curtain cosmically a little bit to see what's actually really happening. We saw this in chapters 4 and 5 after Jesus addresses the church directly in chapters 2 and 3. Then we see in chapter 4 and 5, if you remember, he gets a peek behind the curtain to see God's throne room and everything worshiping 
God. And so he's going to do a similar thing here in chapters 12, 13, and 14. If you remember the beginning of chapter 4, we had this language about this door that is opening to heaven. And then we see at the end of 11, bleeding into chapter 12, there's a great sign that appeared in heaven. And for us, if you're joining us, man, Revelation is hard to read. It's strange language to us with modern ears. We don't quite understand it. And to help us illustrate this, we've been trying to, again, get around what the apocalyptic language looks like and feels like that the original readers would have understood. So to help us understand this, I I have a question like, how many of you have been to the circus? You've physically been to the circus. Oh, more than I thought. Wow, okay. I remember going to the circus. I was real little. I went with my grandparents. But even if you didn't raise your hand, um, you know what goes on at the circus. You would begin to identify because it's kind of wrapped in our culture in America of what the circus is, right? You would go, okay, I I can get an idea of somebody flying 30 feet through the air doing flips and kind of the shiny spandex up in the air. You might go, okay, there's, there's a guy, and if you're describing the circus to somebody that's never been there, he's got a top hat and a red coat, and maybe he's got a whip, and there's a lion that he is kind of messing around with. Or maybe you go, like, okay, there was somebody that, that had their, their face painted white, and they had a red nose, and they, they were juggling these bowling pins riding a unicycle. You would go, like, okay, I, I understand what a circus is. But if we took a time machine and we went back to the first century, to 90 AD, and we sat down with people, that that the original audience of this letter of Revelation, and we started describing what a circus was and even using that language to illustrate what the gospel is like Henry Nouwen does with the trapeze artist, they would look at you like, what are you talking about? A guy with a coat and a top hat and a line? Like, it would be totally foreign to them. And so when we read Revelation and the images we're going to see even today in chapter 12, we read it at first hand, we go like, this just sounds weird. I don't understand this. But to the original hearers, they would go, oh, I get that. I get that. That makes sense. Because what John is doing is he's pulling from the stories in the Old Testament that the Jewish people would understand, and he's pulling from the Roman culture. It would be very common to them. But again, there's a gap in time and a gap in culture, and we go, I don't know what he means. And so for us, it's to go, okay, what is actually happening here in this symbolic language? We're going to see in the first verse of chapter 12, under a great sign appeared in heaven. That that word sign literally means symbols. And so these These are symbolic understandings of what's happening in the cosmic battle even now. And so just to help us understand, it might seem weird because some of the language we're going to hear in chapter 12 today, we're going to hear about a pregnant woman. We're going to be hearing about a red dragon, a baby ruler, the wilderness, angels, the blood of the lamb, eagle's wings, this river from the serpent's mouth that's trying to drown this person. And then we're going to see the earth's mouth swallowing that river. As we read this, we go, like, I, this doesn't make any sense to us. But again, to the original readers, it would make sense. So we need to do the work to connect the dots culturally to go, what is actually being said? What is being said to the original hearers? And then what is it saying to us today? Because we believe that God's word is living and active and it has something for us to say, that the book of Revelation has something for us this morning to change us to look like the person of Jesus. And if you're taking notes, the idea, the big idea of chapter 12 that we're going to run down this morning is this, is that because of the dragon, 
you have a true enemy. Because of the dragon, you have a true enemy, but because of the lamb, you can have true victory. Because of the dragon, you have a true enemy, but because of the lamb, you have true victory. And here's how I want to break down the, check, the text. Because we're only in one chapter, we can dial it in a little tighter this morning. And so we're going to look at it in three sections, the entire chapter. We're going to see, we're actually going to pick up in the last verse of chapter 11, verse 19. And it'll bleed into the beginning of chapter 12. So we're going to look at uh, verses 1 through 6 is the first section. That's really about the arrival of Jesus in this cosmic battle that, again, John gets to see behind the curtain. So we'll read that and we'll talk about it. And then we'll look at uh, verses 7 through 12. And that's really about the defeat of this enemy of Satan. And then we'll look at verses 13 through 17. And that has to do with the warfare of the church. Now that this enemy is down on earth, what does it mean for God's people? What does it mean for us today? And so I want to walk through those three sections. I want to give cultural context for some of the languages being used. And then I want us to go like, well, what does that mean for us, And we'll give three applications at the end to go like, how does that apply to our lives today? So that's where we're going to go. So if you have a Bible, open it up. Um, the last verse of chapter 11, getting into chapter 12. That's where we're going to start. Let's look at it together. It says this in verse 19 of chapter 11. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, Peals of thunder and earthquake and heaven and, and, and heavy hail. Again, God's temple was the, the place, the, the physical place where God dwelt on the earth. And the ark was right in the middle of that temple. God's glory manifested on earth. And so uh, John is getting a peek into what's actually happening. God's true presence in the midst of this battle. Chapter 12, verse 1 says, And a great sign appeared in heaven. And a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great dra red dragon with seven heads and, se and ten horns, and his head seven diadems. Those are crowns. Verse 4, his tail swept down a third of the stars in heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to who is to rule, oh, excuse me, to was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she was to be nourished for a thousand two hundred in 60 days. Let's get around some of the symbolism in these first six verses. Again, the first thing that we need to recognize are who are these people? Verse 5 talks about um, a male child being born who rules all the nations with an iron or a rod of iron. This is a direct reference to Jesus. It's from Psalm 2, which again, the original readers would have had in their minds, and this, this idea of a, uh, a, a, an iron rod uh, had to do with a staff, a shepherd's staff, that this description of the Messiah in chapter 2 of Psalm was talking about that the Savior would come and he would rule the nations. And so Jesus is this child being born. So that leads us to go like, well, who is the woman? You might go, okay, is, is it 
talking about, is John talking about Mary, the symbolism of, of Mary? Is he talking about Eve? It's really the idea, if you pull back, it's really talking about Israel, God's people, which Mary comes from that line. And we're going to see as we continue down, when we're talking about this woman being uh, birthing this child, it's talking about the church and Israel, all of God's people. Then we see this character, this dragon, who is the dragon? We're going to see as we drop down to chapter uh, verse 9 in a minute that the dragon is actually Satan. And Jesus talks about Satan as enemy in John chapter 10, verse 10, that he wants to kill and steal and destroy. And he wants to devour Jesus and his people in the scene. And he operates in lies and half-truths, accusations and manipulations. And again, we'll talk about what that actually means for us today. And then we see this language of wilderness. We're going to see it carried throughout chapter 12. It's this, this place of protection and future promise that there's a place that this woman goes. It's, she's protected in the midst of her in-between time. We also see these uh, 1,260 days, which is the equivalent of three and a half years. And this is a direct reference, again, to the original ears. They would, they would hear this. This is from Daniel 9 and Daniel chapter 12. This idea that there is an in-between time for God's people, even Israel at the time, that this Messiah is going to come, but when he comes, it's not going to be instant and, and everything is going to be made right. There's going to be a season of in-between time, just like there's a season for us as the church, even though Jesus has won the battle because of what he's done on the cross there's a time until he comes and returns when all things are going to be made right there's a season of in between for us as God's people and what these six verses do is they really give uh, if you're familiar with the Bible which again the original readers would have been the, the Old Testament they would have uh, echoed the Genesis 3 account of what's happening when this serpent comes down and tricks Adam and Eve to believe something that's not true about God and because of that unbelief, because of that disobedience, sin enters into the narrative, and you see the consequences of this. Even you see it in the text here in verses, uh, verse 2, that this mother was pregnant. She's crying out in birth pains and in agony of giving birth. This is a direct reference to the fall. One of the things that are consequences of disobeying God is that there's going to be pain in childbirth. It's echoing what's happening in Genesis 3 all throughout time, that there's this cosmic battle that continues to happen until Jesus finally returns. Let's look at the next section, verse 7. It says, now a war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But when he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, and the ancient, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil, Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Let's look at some of the language here. Verse 7, Michael is the archangel, the prince of angels. We see that again in Daniel chapter 12. He's fighting this holy war. But verse 8 tells us that 
Satan is thrown down. No longer has he a place anymore in heaven. He cannot be in God's presence any longer. And because he no longer has a place and because what Christ has done in the church, now Jesus goes and prepares a place for us. We have a place because of the work of the cross. Verse 9 tells us Satan is thrown down, that Christ has won. Tim Chester talks about Michael in this account specifically, that Michael is the bailiff carrying out the eviction order secured at the cross. So the victory is already won, and this is just a carrying out of what happens. And then we see how we have victory based in verse 10 and verse 11, that they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb, Jesus' sacrifice and his work on the cross, and by the word of their testimony. But then verse 12 tells us, That we need to be aware that this is the only command in all of chapter 12 is rejoice. To re-find our joy that that battle has been won. And in the midst of that, those who have surrendered their life to Christ, those who have exchanged their life for his, you have victory. But those who have not made that decision, you better be careful because the devil is thrown down to earth and he knows his time is short. And what he's doing is he's throwing a temper tantrum trying to take as many people as he can with him. And you need to be aware of that. But he is defeated. We clearly see that from the text. Then let's look at this last section, verses 13 through 17. It says, when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and a half a time. The serpent poured water out like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came and to help the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring and those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So just like in verse 13, just like Pharaoh pursued God's people, the Israelites, into the wilderness, so does Satan. He pursues God's people and they go into the wilderness. Verse 14 talks about this great eagle, these two wings, and you might think, okay, I feel like that's a reference to maybe Isaiah 40, um, but these original readers would probably think of Exodus 19. When God is speaking from Mount Sinai to his people, he's rescued them out of slavery, out of Egypt, and he's speaking, and this is what he says in Exodus 19.4. He says, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you out to myself. That God is the one that brings us out of the darkness and into light. He is ultimately the one that rescues us. And then we see this time, times, and time and a half. Again, it's a direct reference to Daniel 12, this in-between time that God's people are living in. And then we see in verse 15, this strange metaphor and and, and imagery of the serpent that pours out this water like a river to flood the woman, but then the earth opens its mouth and swallows that flood. What is that about? In Greek stories, in mythology, which the Romans would have understood at the time of the reading, that these river deities could send a flood against their enemies. And we even see this in the Exodus story. What does God use to crush the enemies? He opens up 
the sea for his people to walk through on dry land. And then he closes the sea on his enemies. And this is what Satan tries to do. He tries to hijack what God does, and it doesn't work. And even specifically, the language and imagery that would have been familiar is this idea that water is a symbol of slander. And so what Satan is trying to do is he's trying to slander. He knows that because the victory is won in Christ, he can no longer change that. But what he's going to try and do, he's going to try and slander God's people. He's going to try and twist the truth. He's going to try and confuse us to go, like, that's, that's not really true. And we'll again see how that plays out in just a moment. But what happens is the earth comes and swallows up that water. And again, some of the symbolic imagery that, that, that our first readers would understand were that mouths, specifically in Revelation, the word mouth is a direct reference for speech, and specifically in Revelation, God's word. So we see that in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 10, we'll see it in 19 and chapter 21, when this symbol is being used, it's talking and giving reference to God's word. So in the midst of the enemy spewing out lies and slander about God's people, about who God is, God's word comes and absorbs it. And that's really how we fight the lies of the enemy, is that we know the truth. And in the midst of knowing the truth, we can go like, ah, that's not true. God's word actually absorbs that lie, and the Satan is not able to overcome and do what he wants to do. That's the way we combat the enemy. So what does that mean for us? As we walk through all this text, let's, let's talk about this idea. Again, because of the dragon, you have a true enemy, but because of the lamb, you can have true victory. I want us to walk through three things that I think will help us make sense and connect the dots. The first thing is this. Um, we walk around in our daily lives acting like we're not in a battle. Don't we? I mean, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The A.W. Tozer quote that, that often he says that, man, people think that life is like a playground, not a battleground. And because of our consumer culture and because we've just been so comfortable, we just walk around thinking like everything should go fine. And we don't realize we're in a battle constantly. That's what this text is telling us. That's what the entire Bible tells us. And some of you, you know this at a gut level because of what has happened just this week to you. You go, oh, yeah. Like, that broke. That didn't work. That happened. And you go, you're, going like, you're going like, oh, man, this is crazy. Instead of going like, oh, yeah. Like, we're constantly in conflict. We are constantly in a battle. And again, for us to be reminded of that so that our expectations can be correct instead of getting frustrated and going like, man, why is this happening again? This shouldn't happen. And you go, well, the world is broken and we're in a constant battle all the time. And again, think of it very practically. There's war going on right now in Israel. Terrible, terrible things are happening. Can you imagine if that war was in our country? Next week, we come in this room, and that is our reality. We are at war. Would you live differently? Or would you just go about your daily life and just live how you live 
Or would you go like, okay, I'm going to shift this. Like my, my priorities are going to change. I'm going to spend my time differently. Because you realize you are in a battle. You are in a war. There's lives that are, 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 are being casualties right now. And so for us to go like, we are in a spiritual battle all the time. That should shift our focus. It should shift our priorities to go, man, how am I doing what God is calling me to do? How am I spending time in his word? How am I spending time with people? How am I sharing the truth and goodness of Jesus Christ? But many of us, just, we just forget because we're kind of rocked into the sleep of like, oh, it's not that big a deal. Just live your life. And the Bible is telling us like, stop acting like you're not in a war. You are in a battle. You are in a war. We need to be reminded of that. The second thing we see in the text is that not only do we walk around in our daily lives acting like we're not in a battle, we walk around in our daily lives acting like we don't have an enemy. And this is for sure true in the reformed space that we find ourselves in, right? That Satan, ah, it's a, ah. Because you get the other extreme, right, where maybe you haven't changed your tires on your car for five years, and then all of a sudden you get a flat and your tire blows, and you go, see, the devil's out to get me. And you go, no, man, you didn't change your tire. Like, I, like it's still a result of the fall. Like in the new creation, tires won't wear out if we have cars, but the devil's not out to specifically get you. You're just being careless. Or maybe you sin and you put yourself in a, in a, a situation of sin and you go, oh, the devil's out to get me. You go, look, hold on a second. So because of the, some of that rhetoric, we swing all the way over here to the other extreme and we go, oh, the de- oh, Satan, that's not even real. Barna did a, 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 a survey a couple years back, and they, they surveyed just under 2,000 people that, that are in America that they claim Jesus as the Savior, and 40% of them go, like, Satan's not real. He's not real. Satan is very real. Like, we have to be aware of that. You have an enemy that wants to kill you, that hates you, that wants to twist and manipulate what's true about God, and he's lying to you constantly. If you don't think Satan's real, and you read the Bible, and you say this is really true, Jesus references Satan multiple times. John chapter 12, for one of them, he talks about when when the enemy is getting cast down onto the earth directly with this scene. We have to take Satan as real, just like we have to take God's spirit as real. And again, in our American context, we miss this a lot. Our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, they get this very true. They, They believe in some of this stuff, and we go, ah, it's not that big a deal. We're enlightened. I know, like you have an enemy that wants to crush you, and his name is Satan. John Mark Comer, if you're interested in some of this work, he wrote a great book a couple years ago called Live No Lies, and he talks about how Satan works and how our flesh works and how the world works and how they work in this dance in tandem to be an enemy to us that we often don't give credit to. Here's how he says it. I think this is helpful language. He talks about Satan has deceptive ideas that he whispers to you. These deceptive ideas play out to your disordered desires, our flesh. Like, oh yeah, that does feel good. Oh yeah, I should do that. So you hear these whispers and you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of like that. And your flesh kind of doubles down on that. Yeah, that would be right to do. You should do that. You should have autonomy. You should feel good all the time. And then he says that they're normalized in a sinful society, which is the world. 
that the world around you, if they're not following Jesus, or even if they say they are, would go, yeah, 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 that, that makes sense. You should do that. That, that. That's actually what you should do. This is how this works, this enemy that is against us all the time. I have a friend who, he's got kids that are almost teenagers. And um, like any, any family, if you've been around any kids, man, kids just fight all the time because of our sinful nature. We want autonomy. We want what we want. And so he's saying how his kids always fight about the remote. Who gets to watch what on TV? And they have a Roku, which is like an Apple TV. It's a streaming device. Is this happening in your house? I see these, these debate sisters going like, we never do that, you know, right? Uh, yeah, it never happens at your house. So in the midst of, they have a Roku device, which comes with a remote that streams to your TV. But I don't know if you know this, but if you lose your remote, you can download the Roku app and you can have a remote on your phone. And you can change the channels from your remote. So in the midst of his two kids fighting over what they're going to get to watch, and finally one gets the remote, and they, he sits behind the couch and he pulls up his app on his phone and he starts changing the channels from his app, and they start fighting with one another. Why are you changing that? I didn't change it, I didn't do anything. Do you know that you have an enemy that is pressing buttons behind the scenes that you don't even see? And then we start fighting with one another. And we start blaming one another, and we start thinking we're the enemies, and he's just back there pressing these invisible buttons. Like, do we get that? Do we understand that? Or are we just kind of asleep on that? Oh, no, that's just like Satan. That's not a real thing. Like, that is real. And here's how it works. Even, again, the context of the original readers in chapters 2 and 3, these seven churches that Jesus is addressing specifically because of the idolatry of the Roman culture. Right? In Ephesus, what have they done? They've forgotten their first love, which the enemy is whispering, you're good with your good deeds. Good job holding to your doctrine. Don't worry about that other stuff. That's the enemy whispering like, oh, you're, you're good with that stuff. You're good with your good deeds. That's a lie from the enemy. Then we look again, the next church is Smyrna, and they're, they're, they're remaining faithful in the midst of your circumstances. And what would the enemy want to whisper to them? Like, does God really love you because of your circumstances? Because that happened to you this week? Does God really love you? I don't know if he does. The enemy wants to whisper that lie to you. What about the next church, Pergamum? Again, they begin to compromise in their worship, even with sexual things that are okay in the Roman culture. And what the enemy would want to whisper to them is like, like sex, sexual compromise is fine. It's not that big a deal. Man, that's old-fashioned stuff in the Bible. You shouldn't worry about that. You shouldn't think about that. Do what feels right to you. Everybody else is doing that thing. You should do it too. It's a lie from the enemy. The next church, Thyatira, they're having a similar situation, but then Jezebel is mentioned in that part of the text in chapter two, and he's going like, I gave her time to repent, and she didn't. What's the lie the enemy wants to use there? And again, you go back to these passages in chapter two and chapter three, you see the devil mentioned, you see Satan mentioned all over the text to go like, here's the invisible button that he is pushing there. Like, man, you have time to clean that stuff up. Just keep doing what you want to do. Don't worry about it. You'll have time to walk with Jesus. And we saw this all the time in college ministry. People was like, ah, oh, I want to live the college experience, and then, uh, then I'll get back to, like, walking with God. That's a lie from the enemy. He wants you to believe that truth. It's not true. Repent and walk with God today. You don't know how long you have. The next church is Sardis. 
And again, in the beginning of chapter 3, they're apathetic. He's saying, you look alive, but you're actually dead. You need to wake up. He says that in the text. Jesus tells that to the church. What's the lie that the enemy is using there? Like, you should just coast in life and faith. You don't have to really be serious about Jesus. Just the lie would be like, oh, just show up. Just do whatever. You don't have to take your faith seriously. That is a lie from the enemy that, again, has kind of rocked us into this sleep just like the church Sardis, or um, uh, yeah, Sardis. And then we see Philadelphia, which again, they're a, a good report in chapter three, but what's happening to them in the text is that people are lying. They're saying like, hey, I know the, the people that say they're Jews in the synagogue, but they're really not. What's the lie that the enemy would want to play off that? Like there's this slander. There's something happening in the church and God, it doesn't seem like you see it. It doesn't seem like you're paying attention. And so the lie the enemy would want to say is like, you better defend yourself. Because God's not your defender. Because if he was really your defender, why would this stuff be happening? God says, no, I see it. Hang tight. I'm working in the midst of this. And then the last church we see is Laodicea in chapter 3, which most of us are familiar with, this lukewarm language. You're neither hot nor you're cold. And they say in the text, man, they are rich and they need nothing. The lie the enemy would want to say is like, man, your security is found in your wealth in your bank account, in your goodness. You don't need to trust me for certain things. You don't need to trust God for certain things. Those are all lies that the enemy is sitting back and pressing invisible buttons. Do you know when the lie comes to your mind and to your heart? We have to do this work because we're getting lies whispered to us all the time by the enemy to our flesh and they're just stamped in our culture to go, that's fine. And we got to know how to combat that. How do you combat that? You take every thought and you take it captive and make it obedient to Christ and you understand your Bible and you understand your word and you go, you know what? I just sinned. And then the enemy would want to come in and just twist the knife and go, you can't go back to church. Look what you did. It's a lie. The truth is you have an advocate in Jesus. It's not about your work and whether you sin or you don't sin. It's about your relationship with Jesus and he's done the perfect thing for you, and you lean into that, and the enemy will go, that's too good to be true. You can't trust that. The blood of Jesus, like, you you can't keep coming back to that answer. It's the only answer we come back to. We have to understand we have an enemy that wants to lie to us all the time, and we have to be aware of that and how to combat that. The last thing we see, if we see We walk around in our daily lives acting like we're not in a battle. We need to. We walk around in our daily lives acting like we don't have an enemy. And then we walk around in our daily lives acting like we don't have victory. We do. Again, we can kind of swing in these two extremes. But we see it in in verse 10 and verse 11, that they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, for they love their lives even to death. That we have victory because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Nothing we've done, everything that Jesus has done. And even though we have that victory secure, we're in this in-between time of brokenness and lies, and we have to cling to that victory. If you knew you had victory, would you live differently? If you knew you were on a trapeze and you were jumping off and it was guaranteed somebody was going to catch you, would you live differently in the air? I would, but I believe a lot of times, I don't know if I'm going to get caught feels like, God, you've let me down. Like, I don't know, man. And so then I'm hesitant to even jump. But we have a victory based on this text and based on the truth of the Bible, that what Jesus has done is secured that for us, that allows us to live differently in our lives. 
And because we have ultimate victory, again, it doesn't mean we're not going to have trouble. It doesn't mean we're not going to experience suffering. It doesn't mean we won't experience pain in this in-between time. We're going to experience all of those things. But it helps us walk through that. Just like in Psalm 23, the shepherd is with you in the, in the shadows, in the valley of death. He's with you. It's not like it goes away, but he's walking with you through it. So that changes your mindset to go through hard things in the midst of this in-between season of brokenness and lies coming from the enemy. You go, no, I'm going to stay next to my shepherd, and I'm going to trust him step by step, moment by moment. Because of the dragon, you have a true enemy, which again, most of us don't recognize or acknowledge, but because of the lamb, you can have a true victory. Let's pray together. Father, would you be with us in this truth today? Would you help us make sense of the fact that we are in a battle, that we do have an enemy, that he lies to us? Help us wake us up to those lies and ground ourselves in your truth. Help us understand we have a true victory based on your son's work on the cross. We need you to enable us to do that by the power of your spirit. Even this morning, we ask you to do it. We pray in your name. Amen.